Chapter 1 I will protect her, Christian said, standing next to his mother as the neighborhood stood by, as Watchman scrambled in and out of his friend Erica's house. Anne looked down at her son with a curious expression, only to see he was not talking to her. Anne pulled her son closer as she warded off the cool night air, watching the remains of the Dubay house smolder. Smoke rose from the cracks in the windows and from under the doorway. Most of the interior could be viewed from the front. The fire had spread like a plague, consuming the wooden building before the neighbors even knew what was happening. Christian had been the first to notice. Up late, oil lamp burning low, curled up under a bearskin rug his father had made for him when he had turned thirteen, he had caught sight of the orange and yellow flames playing inside the Dubay house. He dropped his head, towing his foot under a smoking timber that had landed nearby, as he recalled what had happened. Not realizing what was going on, he had sat and watched the odd colors play along the curtains, until his mesmerization was broken by the sound of glass cracking when two cloaked figures dashed out of the building from the side entrance. Christian had yelled for them to stop, but if the people had heard him, they showed no signs of it, continuing their way down the side alleyway into the shadows of the night. His next move had been more productive, waking his dad, a captain in the watch, before running outside, clad in his pajamas, the rug tossed over his shoulder. Using it as a barrier between himself and the fire, he darted into the same entrance the men had fled, the door already hanging off its hinges. A tongue of red-hot flame licked around the doorframe. He raised the rug high and then headed in, placing the rug over his head, shielding himself from the heat and the smoke. Mr. Dubay! Mrs. Dubay! Erica! he yelled, choking on a breath of smoke. <clears throat> The living room was just now being consumed in full force. The closest doorway led him to Mr. and Mrs. Dubay's bedroom, but it was a conflagration. Everything was burning. He thought he could make out the shapes of the Dubays in the bed, but they were far gone. The bed was a bonfire, covering their heads head to toe in flames. He looked for Annika, but he saw the crib, a pile of tinders, knocked over and ashes littered the floor around it. Reeling back from the door, he ducked down, taking another quick breath, before searching the rest of the house. The heat and smoke was causing his eyes to water. Next he found himself in Erica's room, and he exhaled a sigh of relief, picking out purple ponytails amongst the white sheets, though in the back of his head the wheels were already turning as to what it was he was looking at. The walls and ceiling were alight with fire, as were her dresser and most of her toys, but her bed was untouched, and she was unconscious atop it. As he strode in, he noticed the floorboards around her bed were damp, and the bed itself seemed to have been doused in water. It was streaming off in rivulets from the corners of the mattress. Scattered around Erica on the bed were three knives coated in blood, and a few coins he did not recognize. He heard the roar of the fire out in the living room, the splintering of the support beams. He felt the house shake as the roof came down out in the living room. He had to brace himself against the bed to keep from being knocked off his feet. 
Christian steadied himself with a sigh before he tossed the rug into the flames. Taking one of the blankets from Erica's bed and throwing it around himself in a hurry, he pulled up the bedding around Erica and grabbed her up in his arms, sheets and all. Her two braids were purple, not the sea green they had been earlier. With her wrapped up and held to his chest, he was surprised by how light she was, being only a few years younger than himself. He pushed the random tangents out of his mind, focusing on the real and present danger of getting her out of this funeral pyre. Clutching her in front of him, he pulled the blanket over her head to protect her from the smoke. He picked his way back through the living room, making his way around the detrius from the roof. His vision blurred from the smoke getting in his eyes, and he could feel his nostrils were on fire. His feet burned, but he somehow made his way back outside. He kept his footing long enough to feel someone bump into him, hear a familiar voice, and then collapse forward. That had all been an hour ago. He awoke to searing pain in his feet and his mother kneeling over him, wiping his face with a damp rag. Lifting his head, he saw he was in front of their home, and he could see the semicircle of people standing around the debate house. His mother explained what she could. His father had jumped out of bed moments after Christian had awoken him, yelling out for the watch once he got outside. The closest on duty came running, and a bucket brigade had begun in the next few minutes. One of the watch had run to the house as Christian had been fleeing with Erica. In his days, he had mumbled that no one was left. He had then keeled over and passed out, clutching Erica in his protective embrace. By the time the watch tracked down a Majir to call upon the power of the storm, there was little left to save. Standing in the aftermath, he berated himself. If only he had acted sooner. His mother told him to sit down or he would only make his feet worse, but the pain kept him awake. Erica, where is Erica? In all the confusion, he realized he had not seen her since he had passed out. She's still out resting, his mom replied. She's in our bed, and one of the watches in there keeping an eye on her. Christian gazed towards his house, feeling somewhat relieved, looking around at the crowd of people that turned tragedy to spectacle. He could not help but scan the crowd, thinking that someone, somewhere, something. He wanted to search, but the stern hand of his mother kept him within arm's reach. When there was nothing left to see, he turned, pulling his arm from his mother's grasp. He walked to his home and the comfort of his bed, to mull over the night's events. He saw the watch marking off a circular area around the skeletal remains of the house, the crowd dispersing as he walked inside. He felt a tinge of sadness for the debates, but he focused on the one positive. Erica was alive. Before he crawled into bed, he scribbled some notes on a scrap of paper, lest he forget them by the time he woke up later. His father had always taught him that a person's mind was freshest right after an incident occurred. The fleeing people, the soaked bed, the coins, the knives. All important in some way, he knew. All questions needing answered. The sun was just cresting the horizon as Christian's mind drifted off to the subconscious. 
Later that day, after a gentle rousing and questioning by his father, Christian ended up going outside to see if there was anything he could glean from the remains of the fire. He at first wanted to talk to Erica, but she was still asleep. The watch physician had stopped in and said it was nothing more than a little exhaustion mixed with some minor smoke inhalation, and that she should be fine in a day or so. From time to time, Erica would toss and turn, mumbling to stay back, stay back, but still she slept. Christian had wanted to wake her, but his mom said it was out of the question. She left no room for argument. Christian, lad, what brings you out here? The man was a member of the watch, one of his dad's friends, Morin. Christian recalled the man from the watch house and the games of dice he was fond of. Just looking for clues, Christian said, standing a few feet from the ruins of the house, so as to at least give the impression that he did not want to ignore the posted guards. Well, we already checked out about everything, but you're more than welcome to take a look around, Morin said. I reckon you'd be going in whether I said you could or not anyway, am I right? Giving a slight nod, Christian endured the ruffling of his hair by the man as he walked by. It was not the attention that he minded, so much as how the members of the watch all seemed to treat him like he was still the five-year-old that would come in on his father's shoulders to work, sitting behind the desks and poking his nose about the office. There, he had seen many a criminal murderer brought in, questioned, and locked up. He never had the desire to take to the watch and catch criminals, but he had taken to the investigative aspects of the job. He enjoyed listening to the various people who would be brought in, hear their stories, and note the inaccuracies and inconsistencies that would follow. A few times, his powers of deduction had even produced results. A man accused of robbing and killing a store clerk had been cleared by the collaborative efforts of some of his friends. They swore they had been playing cards with the suspect the night of the robbery. And everything had seemed fine, until Christian pointed out that from where the people had reported seeing the man, at the times they did, that there was no way they could have seen him in the allotted time. A second, more intense questioning had yielded similar results, leading to the discovery of the murder weapon at one of the friend's places of residence. That had been when Christian was ten. Five years later, he had lost none of the inquisitiveness that drove him. He walked around the scattered remains of the house. A few guards posted around the perimeter were his only company. He surveyed the area, looking at the charred remains that the house had become. And for what? From what he had heard from his father this morning, nothing had been taken. Nothing appeared to have been stolen. The chest the Dubays kept their valuables in had been a little scorched, but unbroken. Three corpses had turned up. No one was missing. It did not make any sense. Mr. Dubay had been a cobbler of little fanfare. His wife stayed at home and took care of the kids. Christian's father had known them for most of his life. Mr. Dubay did not drink or gamble. He was a loving father and husband. Who would do this and why? Those were the questions that propelled Christian through the ashes of the house. And after an hour of searching, he was no closer to finding the answers he sought than when he had first started. Frustrated, 
he asked Morin if the corpses had been taken to the undertaker yet. He shook his head, pointing to three blankets that were laying out next to each other. May I take a look? Christian asked. You can if you must. There ain't much to see, Morin said. Which was true, Christian thought to himself as he pulled back the first blanket. Charred and blackened, the skeletal frame of one of the Dubays stared up into the sky. The jaw hanging wide, caught in some eternal scream. Christian stared a moment, wondering why it did not face him. He reached into one of his pockets and pulled out a sharpened stick he used as a quill. Crouching down, he grabbed the end of the twig and scraped off some dirt from the skull before him. He was not sure what he was expecting to find. He worked his way down the skeleton, cleaning any dirt and ash from the bones until he felt sure that nothing was covered or hidden. It made no difference. Nothing further was revealed to him. He did the same with the second blanket, which he assumed had been Mrs. DeBay, as the skeleton seemed slightly smaller than the previous one. But again, nothing. When he pulled aside the last blanket, however, Christian did begin to take note. Something looked off. For one thing, while the bodies of Mr. and Mrs. DuBay had been in a semi-recognizable, assembled fashion, the baby seemed to just be a jumble of parts. It was as if someone had taken all the pieces and just piled them together. He picked up a few bones and looked them over, brushing them off as he had done the others. Something else was out of place. He took a few pieces and went over to one of the other corpses. It took him a few moments to see the difference. The corpses of the parents had burnt remains stuck to them, what he assumed was melted sinew and muscle. Also, some of the bones were cracked from heat exposure. But the baby's bones were different. They were bare, as if they had been scrubbed free of tissue. They also did not seem to have the same amount of scorches and burns. He put a few bones back with the small corpse, then did a look at both. The difference was clear. Side by side, the parents' skeletons were in far worse condition. And by Christian's guess, the child's bones should look worse off, if for no other reason that they were smaller overall, and should have been more damaged by the heat and the fire. Morin! Morin, look at this! Christian called the guard over. Uh, well, what do you have here? Morin said, walking over, a curious look on his face. He had heard enough useful ideas from the boy to at least warrant to listen to whatever he had to say. It was his friend's parents, after all. He looked at what Christian pointed out, scratching his mop of brown hair with the end of his nightstick. Eh, Morin said, looking from skeleton to skeleton. What am I looking for, exactly? He asked, looking back and forth between the mother and the father. No, no, look over here, and then at them, Christian said, smiling, his face filled with self-satisfaction, trying to contain himself. His gesturing did not seem to make it any clearer to Morin, as he grabbed the skulls from the small corpse and one of the larger ones. He held them up for a closer scrutiny, one in each hand. See? See? Christian said, pushing the skulls right in front of Morin's face. Uh, sorry, Chris, guessing I don't, Morin barked, leaning his head back from the bones. But, uh, go show your father. 
Moore knew the kid was wrapped up in the whole thing personally, and he was good at spotting clues. Moore knew he was not the watchman the kid needed to talk to. Christian nodded, running off to his house. Watchmen were just making their rounds. They had lit street lamps, and he kicked the door open with his foot. His dad was sitting at the table with his mother. Dad, look what I found. Christian was beaming as he strode up to the table and dropped the two skulls down in front of his father, as if displaying first prize in a contest. Had he been less focused on his find, he might have noticed Erica sitting across from his parents at the table, prodding a bowl of stew with a spoon. Christian realized his mistake the moment he heard the skulls clank on the table, but by then Erica had looked up from her soup and it was too late. Carrots and beef splattered over the table as Erica let the spoon slip through her fingers, eyes transfixed on the skulls. Her eyes welled with tears that turned into waterfalls. Powers above, Christian, what's wrong with you? His father shouted, cuffing the boy on the head with one hand while scooping the skulls up with the other. His mother got up and knelt down next to Erica, offering her a hug and a shoulder to cry on as she led her to the bedroom. His mother managed to shoot Christian one of her looks over her shoulder that conveyed exactly how disappointed she was. Sorry, but you have to see this, he said, as he felt his father tug him into the kitchen. He saw his father's face redden, but cool after a few seconds. Thirty-two years in the watch outweighed the fifteen years of raising a kid. He knew his son's heart was in the right place, even if his brain was not. What did you find? his dad asked. He lowered his voice as to not upset the woman in the other room, setting the skulls down on the counter. He saw well enough as he asked the question, though. I know this does not make any sense, but I do not think the baby out there is Erica's sister. Christian went into his thoughts on the matter, about examining the bones and cleaning them off, noticing the discoloration, which further led him to inspect the remains in detail. Despite the situation, Christian's father fought the pride he wanted to show in his son's budding instincts. He had not had a chance to inspect the bodies himself, having been pulling double duty directing the men on hand and then watching over Erica. His wife's constant questions concerning Erica's health and well-being had not helped. But he could not blame her. A wife of the watch knew how fast a situation could go from bad to worse. He tried to save her from as much of the horrors of the city that he could, but it did not matter. She heard things. Assuring themselves with heartfelt bravado, while every night their husbands or brothers or sons hit the streets. They heard about the murders, the rapes, the tragedies that no human could explain. That is why when something went wrong, panic mode was in full effect in their heads. They took every precaution for that reason. It was why a number of watch were still around the grounds. But why? Christian asked his father. Why indeed, Thomas thought. He held the small skull in the palm of his hand, trying to make sense of it all. Why go through all this work? If this isn't Annika, where is she? And why go through all this disguise? His dad asked, more to himself.
The men, Christian pointed out. I saw two men, well, people, running out of Erica's house before I ran down and woke you and Mama. Right. Did they look like they were carrying anything? I could not say. They were running away from me, and they both had cloaks on. They could have been, Christian added as an afterthought. Wait, there had been coins, coins I didn't recognize, on Erica's bed, Christian remembered. Yes, we're having some experts look at them. The heat did a number on the pressing. Apparently they contained a very pure amount of gold, which made them quite susceptible to the heat from the fire. The designs were damaged and we had to contact some minters. The letters just went out with the coins and it'll be a few days before we hear word back. Thomas realized he had not yet asked his son about the events of the previous night. He sat down with him, and Christian recounted the events. He heard about the fire, the sadness in his son's voice when he berated himself for not acting sooner. Rushing out, waking him and Mom, running into the burning house, seeing everything ablaze going into Erica's room, the soaked bed, the coins, the knives... At this point, his father had him repeat it as to make sure he was positive on all the details. It did not make sense, but his son had no reason to lie about any of it, so he let him continue. He allowed a smile as his son grimaced, recounting how he had tossed his bare rug into the fire to don the wet blankets and wrap Erica up, carrying her outside. He reassured his son that the blankets meant nothing against the life of the girl in the other room and that he could replace the rug. Thomas thought to himself, it's funny what kids think matter in times like these. He loved that rug. Christian finished his retelling a little tired. It was dark now, the sun having set a while ago. When they went back into the living room, they found his mother alone by the fireplace, knitting a sweater. Erica had calmed down and fallen asleep. Christian asked if he could apologize to Erica, but his mom promised he could do it in the morning. It had been a long day, and a little sleep would do them all some good. Christian nodded, climbing the steps to his room. As he climbed into bed, his mind ran wild with all that had happened. The two men were sitting together towards the back of the bar. It was not the best place in town, but that is why they liked it. Eavesdroppers were not welcome here, and were dealt with by the owner. There was never a second offense. So what do you reckon happened, Brent? One man asked the other. He had long brown hair pulled back in a ponytail with matching sideburns and a beard. He was sipping a tankard of ale while addressing his comrade. Beats me, Heron. I take it you haven't seen any one of those guys from the other night, neither. Brent looked older than his partner, short black hair, and a few scars to adorn his face. He was picking some dirt out from under a nail with a stiletto, dropping the refuse onto the floor. One of the barmaids rolled her eyes when she saw Brent do it, to which he tossed her a wink and continued. Serves him right. Our life ain't easy. Them thinking they can just make a name for themselves, simple as that? Grant's crew ain't that simple. Then yeah, they can burn. 
Heron leaned forward, coddling his ale like a newborn. But that's just it. I heard they didn't find any bodies other than the families. Maybe the other girl died before they could get out to her and they split. No, she's still alive. I got a friend in the watch, and he says the daughter lived. Well, I'm positive they skipped town then. Does Grant know? He should. If I know, he's gotta know. Damn it all, I don't want to go back there. Kidnapping is an awful business. Give me a good old murder any day of the week. Less stuff goes wrong with murder. The victim can't escape to turn you in once it's all said and done. I hear you, Brent. I hear you. Heron turned back to his mug, downing it in one go. Do you think Gran will send us after the other girl now, too? No, and I'll tell him as much next time I see him. Brent flicked the stiletto into the table, the handle vibrating briefly as it came to a rest, the blade inch deep in the veneer. He wanted us to see if those kids were any good at the business. I said, sure. Well, they weren't, and now they're missing or dead, and I don't care which. He wants that girl taken, he can go ask a right bag man like Connor or Malcolm. One of the barmaids brought over two fresh mugs of ale. As she set them down on the table, Brent reached over and grabbed one, throwing it at the woman. The contents of the beer emptied across her bodice as she let out a yell of shock as the tankard hit her, spinning off across the floor. I didn't want the damn piss you serve here the first time you asked. Why are you bringing me a second one? The woman sputtered, backing away from the table, trembling, before turning and rushing back to the bar. Kent, the man behind the bar, looked over at the table, hands upturned in apology. Brent just spit on the floor, taking his stiletto back and returning to his grooming. What the hell, man? She was nice enough, and you gotta go and scare her off like that? Heron said as he eyed the fleeing woman, his chance at sweet-talking her into bed now lost. This whole thing's got me wound wrong. There shouldn't have been any problems. It was a child. How hard is it to pick up a sleeping kid and carry her away? Did we have any trouble with the baby? Nope. Did we set a building on fire before we were done with our business? Nope. Did we split up like a couple of knobbers because the job went south? Nope. Lords, no, but now it's all screwed up. Grant was given a lot of money for those girls. Brent kicked the leg of the table, causing the whole thing to shake. Some of the head of Heron's beer splashed onto the table. Let's go talk to Grant, Brent said, getting up, dropping some silver onto the table for the trouble. I need to know what's going on or I'm going to be in a pissed mood all night. Right you are, sir. Right you are. Heron commented as he got up, downed his ale, and gave one of the barmaids a wink and a slap on the ass as they left. Hello, and thank you for listening to the World of Grey podcast. For any questions about the podcast, or the books in general, email me at podcast at josephporthos.com. My two books, Fallen Throne and Dark Halo, are available for download on the Amazon Kindle store for the low price of $3 apiece. I don't output a ton of updates, but when I do release one, you can find it on Facebook at Joseph Porthos, or on my website located at josephporthos.com. I hope you enjoyed today's chapter, and I look forward to you tuning in again next time. This is Joseph Porthos, 
signing off.